0: Well, as always, it is a privilege to come to God's word. Join me in John chapter 17. John 17, and as we have seen, this is a unique chapter in all of the scriptures. John 17, because it does what no other passage does. It brings us into the private prayer life of our Lord. One of the themes that you will see as you work your way through the Gospels is the habit Jesus had to pray. There are many times when we see Jesus remove himself, sometimes from his apostles, sometimes from the crowds, in order to pray. Mark one, Jesus sneaks out of Peter's house in the early morning to pray. Matthew 14, Jesus leaves the crowds, he heads for the hills in order to pray. Luke 5, we're told that Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. You can add multiple other accounts here, examples of the habit Jesus has for prayer. It was through his prayer life that Christ communed with his father. It was through his prayer life that he submitted himself to his father's will. But nowhere except John 17, do we read the extent and the depth of Jesus's prayers. Nowhere except in John 17, do we read the specific requests he brings before his father. Only here, only here are we allowed into the inner sanctuary of Jesus's inter-Trinitarian communion. Only here. Are we given the privilege to hear the particular prayers Jesus offers on our behalf? This is a unique chapter, it's special. And mark this, Jesus' prayers for his people recorded in this chapter, these prayers are meant to be heard by us. This is why Jesus did not keep these prayers silent in his mind, he could have done that. He offers them audibly for his apostles to hear them. John then takes them and records them for us to read them, why? I want you to notice a purpose statement here. The reason Jesus prays these audibly, the reason why these are recorded here is because when we know what Jesus is praying for us and when we believe that the father will never deny his son's request for us, the result for us is joy. It's joy. It's one of the purposes of this chapter. It's so that we will be filled with joy and hope and courage. Notice verse 13. Verse 13 But now I come to you, referring to ascension, his ascension just a few days. I'm about to be in your presence, Father. I'm about to leave the sin-cursed world. But before I do, verse 13, these things, this prayer, I speak audibly. I'm praying not only for you to hear me, Father, but I'm also praying for my apostles by extension, all believers to hear what I pray on their behalf. Why? Finish the verse, so that they may have joy, my joy made full in themselves. When we truly grasp Jesus's prayers for us, we cannot help but be filled with joy. And this is not just any kind of joy. Notice Jesus calls it my joy, the my is emphatic here. This is the joy Jesus was experiencing. Though darkness is approaching, though the pain of his cross is soon, Jesus is speaking of the joy he is experiencing in this moment of trial. He still is joyful. He's a man of sorrows, but he's filled with joy. So the promise in verse 13 is that Jesus allows us to enter into his prayer life so that we too can be joyful like him. We too can be joyful in our times of trial and pain that his unwavering joy can be our unwavering joy so that we too can find hope in the midst of trauma and conflict, that we can find joy and hope and courage when satanic hatred swirls around us. Apply it to Jesus's life in just a little bit. When we are betrayed, Joy is the result when we know the specific prayers Jesus is bringing before his Father on our behalf, and we believe that the Father will never deny the requests of his Son, that every prayer Jesus offers for us receives a yes and amen from the Father. So it brings us to this morning and the next few weeks. We've already answered the question, who is praying this prayer? And we've seen the glory of our Savior who intercedes on our behalf. We've answered the question, who is Jesus praying for? He's not praying for the world of unbelievers. He's praying only for his own who have come to him in saving faith brings us to a third question we must ask and answer. It's the what question. What is Jesus praying for? What specific requests is Jesus asking the Father to do for us? What prayers, if heard by us, will instill joy in us, joy that cannot be touched by the circumstances of this world? There's five specific joy-inducing prayers Jesus asks on our behalf. Five of them, we will focus on the first one this morning. Here's the first prayer Jesus offers for us. Prayer number one. Jesus prays for the eternal protection of our faith. Jesus prays for the eternal protection of our faith. He prays that we will never be spiritually lost. He prays for our eternal security. This is Jesus' prayer, starting in verse 11 and moving through verse 15. Read it. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them. Not one of them perished, but the son of perdition so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you. And these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. You can see the key phrase, the key prayer Key phrase is repeated three times. It starts the prayer in verse 11. Keep them in your name. Continues in verse 12. I, Jesus says, was keeping them. It ends the prayer in verse 15. Keep them from the evil one. Te reo, preserve them. Defend them. It's a word that implies safety and shelter. And we get a picture of this word in Acts chapter 16. A jailer is commanded to guard, same word, keep, guard Paul and Silas securely. Stand watch over them. Make sure no one enters the jail cell. Make sure no one escapes the jail cell. Keep them, guard them, watch over them. In Acts 24 and 25, you see the same word used, Felix and Festus, they command their centurions to keep Paul in custody, secure him. That's the word Jesus chooses. And the word is used here, not of a prisoner, but for God's children, And the word is used here not to be kept safe by a Roman guard, but to be kept safe by a sovereign and loving Father. Notice verse 11 Holy Father, keep them in your name. Holy Father here, the combining of eternal transcendence. God is holy, 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 separate, transcendent. But he's also intimate, he's caring. He loves us. He is our holy, transcendent, intimate Father. Saw that back in chapter 16. The Father himself loves you. This is the one who protects us, cares for us. And why did Jesus' apostles, why do we, by extension, need this prayer for spiritual and sovereign protection. Look again at verse 11. Jesus says, I am no longer in the world. He's leaving, he's ascending. Drop down later in verse 11, he says, and I come to you, Father. And yet, verse 11 says, that they themselves are in the world. I'm leaving, my apostles are staying. They're staying in the world, a world that is not neutral to Christ's people. Don't know if you're aware of that. Drop down to the end of verse 14. Here's the world that Jesus leaves us in. I have given them your word and the world has hated them, despised them rejected them. Why? Because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I've chosen them out of the world. They have a different nature. They have a different master. So the world hates them. They have different values. They have a different gospel. So here's a scenario. Jesus is leaving his apostles in an evil world system that is controlled by Satan and his demons. Satan is the God of this world. Jesus is leaving his apostles and us in an evil world system that will do anything to destroy the Christian's faith. That is the goal of Satan. That is the goal of an evil society. It's to destroy our faith. That's the goal. That's 1 Peter 5.8. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around seeking someone to devour. Satan wants to devour our faith. I've been here for almost nine years. Eight years ago, I made the statement on this Verse. I said, the devil wants to eat your face. I didn't mean to say that. That's bad enough. But he wants to eat your faith. And one of the Price Boys came up to me. It's the only thing he has ever remembered in any sermon that I preached. <laughs> but that's Satan's goal. This is Jesus' warning at the beginning of chapter 16. Notice, chapter 16. Jesus warns, they, those who are a part of this evil world system, they will make you outcasts from the synagogue. They will cut cut you off from the culture. They'll sever you. They'll isolate you. Cut you off from your family, your friends. Jesus continues, they'll even try to kill you. Why? To destroy your faith. Verse three, because they have not known the father or me, their anger against you is because of their father is the devil. This is what Satan wanted to do to Peter on this night. You remember, he wanted to pluck Peter's faith, he wanted to destroy his faith. So Jesus knows how hostile this world is. He knows the satanic system wants nothing more to devour his people and silence his gospel. That's the crisis that's going to fall on Jesus' apostles. That's the same crisis we face today. Our adversaries still seek someone to devour. The world still wants to make you an outcast. Ephesians 6 is still true. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, that is still true. We need divine help. We need divine help if our faith is going to survive. We are not strong enough in and of ourselves. The world is too hostile, the world is too evil. Charles Spurgeon is right, he wrote this, greatly do we need protecting. We have been redeemed, but we still must be protected. We have been regenerated, but we must be protected. We are pure in heart and hands, but we must be protected. We are made alive with the divine life. We have aspirations after the holiest things. Our love for Christ is intense, but we must be protected. We are near the gates of glory, but we must be protected. The same hand that bought us must protect us. And the same father who has begotten us must get us to his eternal kingdom and glory. We need Jesus's prayer of protection in verses 11 through 15. We need it. We are desperate for it. And what we see in this first request are two reasons, two reasons why our faith will endure, why our faith will endure every satanic pressure placed upon us by this evil world system. Two reasons why our salvation is secure even even though the enemy wants to steal it and destroy it. Two reasons why, let's connect this to verse 13. Two reasons why our joy can be made full in a world that is spiraling in sin. Connect this to what Jesus has said in chapter 16, what he will say in his next request. Two reasons why... We can be joyful and courageous and bold no matter the cost in a world that is hostile to Christ's gospel. Two reasons why our faith will survive this evil world system and everything it throws at us. Notice reason number one. Reason number one our faith is eternally secure because we are protected by the power of God. We are protected by the power of God. Look at verse 11, middle. Holy Father, transcendent one, caring one, Holy Father, keep them, here's the key phrase, in your name or by your name. Name here being a reference to God's power and might. Think of Psalm 20. May the name of God, may the power of God set you securely. May the name of God protect you and defend you. Think of Psalm 54. Save me, is the prayer. Rescue me, guard me, shield me. Oh God, by your name. By your omnipotent power, your almighty strength. Or think of Proverbs 18. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe, protected, guarded. So Jesus is praying for nothing less than the omnipotence of God to shelter his people and to shelter us from anything or anyone that might destroy our faith in Christ. Keep them in by your name. And just think of what this means for you and me. If we have come to Christ in saving faith, if Jesus is praying this prayer for us right now, then the same power that created the universe out of nothing and the same power that dispelled Satan from heaven, and the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the same power that split the Red Sea, destroyed Pharaoh's army, stopped the sun in its orbits, that is the same power Christ prays to shelter us in our faith, to keep us spiritually secure. And please note, This is not the son trying to convince his father to do something against his will. No, this is the son praying according to his father's will. Jesus is simply praying his father's promise back to him. Think of John 6. This is the will of him who sent me that of all he has given me, I lose nothing. That's the Father's will, that we are secure forever. It's the Father's will, it's the Son's prayer. Now notice how necessary this prayer is. Here's the reason that Jesus gives in verse 12. While I was with them, his apostles, I was keeping Them, I was keeping, same word. I was protecting, guarding, securing. I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. This is what Jesus has done throughout his entire ministry. He has protected his apostles' faith. That's why they endure. Jesus kept them from going astray by constantly teaching them God's truth protected them from false teaching by exposing the bankruptcy of the religious leader's gospel. He shielded them from any faith-destroying temptation by becoming the lightning rod for the world's hostility. He took the insults. He took the blows. He bore all the hatred. All fell on him. Continue verse 12. And I guarded them. This is the double security that Christ provides. He kept them, he guarded them. He restrained any outside pressure and he stood watch as a spiritual sentinel over any internal doubts. And thus, verse 12, not one of them perished. Satan reclaimed none of his former children. Now we see an example of this faith guarding power of Christ in chapter 18. Turn there for a moment, look at verse six. 18 verse six. The Roman guards approach. Judas indwelt by Satan, never forget that. Judas indwelt by Satan. Christ's battle is not just against flesh and blood. So they come to arrest Jesus. Notice what Jesus does in verse six. They ask him, or he says, who are you seeking? They say Jesus of Nazareth in verse six. He said to them, I am he. He claims the divine name of God for himself. And what happens? They drew back and fell to the ground. That gets their attention. So there's a divine power of Christ exuding from him, I am he, they fall down. So much so that Jesus then says in verse eight, I told you that I am he. He restrains the power now. They don't fall down. But I told you that I am he. I'm the one you're looking for. So if you seek me, watch what he says, let these, let my apostles go their way. So in verse six, he draws on his divine authority. And now in verse eight, because he got their attention, Christ commands the commander of the guards. There's a role reversal here. He commands the commander. He commands the ruler of all evil. He says, leave these apostles alone. Leave them alone. Let them go. Here's the question. Why? Why? because Jesus knew the weakness of their faith. He knew the weakness of their faith. He knew that their faith would shatter if they were taken into custody. And so he guards their faith. He commands the Roman soldiers to let them go. Look at verse nine. That's the connection we are to see. Verse nine. He says this, does this in order to fulfill the word which he spoke, referring back to John 17, the word that he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. I'm guarding them, I'm protecting them. That's a living picture of what the Savior does for us every day. It's a living picture of 1 Corinthians 10. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able beyond what your faith is able to endure he protects us daily he restrains temptation why because he is faithful because he is holy this is what Jesus has done for the last 3 years for these men he's protected his apostles faith not allowed them to be tempted beyond what they were able to endure. But Jesus knows a change is coming. He knows that his restraining hands are about to be nailed to a cross. He knows that he will no longer be by his apostles' side. And so, Jesus, in prayer, he takes his people. And he places them like a baton in a race. He places his people into the father's omnipotent hand. And in prayer, he says, father, now it's up to you. They're yours. You protect them. You keep them. You guard them. You restrain what needs to be restrained. Protect their faith. Now, at this point, here's a question that we should be asking. It's the same question the apostles will be asking when chapter 18 opens. The question is this, what about Judas, right? What about Judas? What about the one who confessed Jesus for the last three years, but is about to betray him? What about the one who walked with Jesus who will soon desert him? make the question more personal. What about that friend? What about that church member from many years back? Or painfully, what about that family member who once confessed Christ, who once walked with Christ, but now wants nothing to do with Christ? What about him? What about her? Has Jesus' prayer for eternal security failed for them? Because if it could fail for them, it can fail for us. Are there exceptions to this promise? Notice Jesus' answer at the end of verse 12. I guarded them. I guarded them, not one of them perished. I kept all who you gave to me safe. Except for Judas, the son of perdition. Translate it, the son of destruction. Perdition here referring to final and eternal judgment in hell. And that phrase, son of, is key to understanding what Jesus is saying here. To call Judas the son of destruction, the son of perdition, indicates that Judas was the son of the devil. He was the son of hell. He was the son of the devil. He was never a child of God, never. That's the distinction Jesus is making. In other words, Judas had never been born again. He was always the child of Satan. The point here is not that Judas lost his salvation. The point here is not that Satan reclaimed one of his own No, the point here is that Judas never possessed salvation in the first place. He was always the son of judgment. He was never a part of God's family, which is what you see throughout this gospel. Think of John six. Jesus looks at the crowd, looks at the crowd, but he also looks at his apostles, that's key. And he says this, there are some of you who do not believe. There are some of you who do not have saving faith. There are some of you who look the part and say all the right words, but you do not possess saving faith. Why does Jesus say this? For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. He sees our faith. And who it was that would betray him. Judas is placed in the category of those who do not believe. Judas did not lose salvation. He never had it. This is why Jesus then looks at his apostles and says, did I myself not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is what? One of you is a devil the son of judgment. I think this is what John has in mind when he states that principle in 1 John chapter 2, 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us. That's Judas. He went out from the 12. They went out from us. Why? Because they were never really of us. They never possessed saving faith. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. Saving faith endures. Saving faith is a gift from God that endures. Judas is a warning. He is a warning. But his rejection did not fall outside of God's sovereign control. Or Jesus's promise prayer here. In fact, finish verse 12. Far from falling outside of God's omnipotent, guarding, sheltering hands, Judas's rejection of Christ actually fulfills the Father's redemptive plan. Verse 12. The son of perdition is allowed to go his way so that the scripture would be fulfilled, so that Christ would die, so that Christ would pay the penalty for sin and save his people forever. The principle is that saving faith endures. The principle is that if someone falls away from the faith, it was because they were never a child of God in the first place. This is why Peter wrote... He knew firsthand Satan's desire to devour his faith. He experienced that firsthand. And yet what does he write? 1 Peter 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because we, his people, have been given an inheritance which is imperishable, immortal, reserved, It's the same word Jesus uses in John 17, kept, guarded, shielded, an inheritance kept in heaven for you, for Christ's people. Why? Because we are protected by the power, by the name of God. Why does the Father do this? Because that is what the Son prayed the Father to do. Our faith is eternally secure because it is protected by the power of God. There's a second reason we can draw, though, from Jesus' prayer here. Second reason why our faith is eternally secure. Reason number two. Because Satan must submit to the sovereign will of God. Satan must submit to the sovereign will of God. The triune God and Satan are not equals. Not even close. It's the creator and the creation. So look at verse 15. Verse 15, Jesus continues, I do not ask you to take them out of the world. At this point in the prayer, we must trust our Savior's wisdom. Because I know what many of us here would rather have Jesus pray. We would rather have Jesus say this Father, take them out of the world. Amen. It's what Moses prayed, Numbers 11. It's what Elijah prayed, 1 Kings 19, as he saw depravity running wild. It's what David prayed, Psalm 55: Oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Can you relate to that? Behold, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. Let's put Psalm 55 in Pacific Northwest language. Father, let them retreat into the woods where no one can ever find them again. I've never prayed that prayer. Or this, Father, let them move to a more conservative state like Idaho. <laughs> and that's what we want Jesus to pray, verse 15. Either remove us from the evil world system or remove the evil. But That's not what Christ prays. Why? Because our calling is to not retreat from this fallen world. Our calling is to testify of God's saving grace while living in this fallen world. That's our calling. J.C. Ryle, though, I think sums it all up. Longer quote, worth it. Pleasant as it might be to flesh and blood to be snatched away from conflict and temptation, we may easily see that it would not be profitable. How could Christ's people do any good in the world if taken away from it immediately after conversion? How could they exhibit the power of grace and make proof of faith and courage and patience as good soldiers of a crucified Lord? How could they be duly trained for heaven and taught to value the blood and intercession and patience of their redeemer unless they purchase their experience by suffering? Questions like these admit of only one kind of answer. To abide here in this veil of tears, tried, tempted, assaulted, and yet kept from falling into sin is the surest plan to promote the sanctification of Christians and to glorify Christ. To go to heaven at once in the day of conversion would doubtless be an easy course would save us much trouble. But the easiest course is not always the path of duty. He that would win the crown must carry the cross and show himself light in the midst of darkness and salt in the midst of corruption. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we have any hope that we are Christ's true disciples, let us be satisfied that Christ knows better than we do what is for our good. We must trust the wisdom of our savior. Let us leave our times in his hand and be content to abide here patiently as long as he pleases, however hard our position, so long as he keeps us from evil. That he will so keep us, we need not doubt because he prays that we may be kept. Nothing, we may be sure, glorifies grace so much as to live like Daniel in Babylon and the saints in Nero's household and the world in the world and yet not of the world, tempted on every side and yet conquerors of temptation, not taken out of the reach of evil and yet kept and preserved from its power. That's the prayer of Jesus. That's what the Father answers. This is why Jesus prays verse 15, because of verse 16. Sanctify them, verse 17 rather, sanctify them. It's not remove them from the world, but sanctify them. Set my people apart for a purpose, a goal. Sanctify them in the truth for the task of proclaiming the truth of Christ. Right, that's our calling. Our calling is not to be taken out of the world, but to testify while in the world. That will be Jesus's second request. He sends us into the world, but before he gets there, He asks his father, verse 15, to keep us. Keep them. Same word guard their faith, not from evil in general, but keep them from the evil one, from Satan himself. Satan being the leader of this evil world system, Satan being the energizer of all gospel hatred. He's the mightiest of all angels before he fell. He's the demon, even Michael the archangel refuses to pronounce judgment upon. He's the deceiver of the nations. He's the one who blinds unbelievers. He's the roaring lion who wants to devour our faith. He's the wolf in Jesus's parable in John 10 who tries to snatch the sheep, scatter the sheep. He's the one created being, the one created being that if it was possible to thwart God's saving design and pluck God's people out of his hand, he's the one who could do it. He's the one created being. And yet what is Jesus's promise and what is Jesus's prayer? It is that the evil one will not be allowed to carry out his faith-destroying plans. It is that the Father will plant his sovereign shield around us and protect us from the most vicious of enemies. We saw that in John 18, look at the book of Job in your own time. Satan wants to shatter Job's faith, yet God restrains Satan In Luke, Satan requests to destroy Peter's faith, yet Christ denies him that request. And that's our hope. That is our hope in this world because that is Jesus's prayer. And again, this is not the son trying to convince his father to do anything against his will. Again, this is the son asking the father to do something he has already promised to do. Listen to John 10. I give eternal life to them, Jesus says, and they will never perish. Eternal life will never be removed from my people. Saving faith will never be destroyed. Why? Because no one, no one, Not even Satan himself will snatch them out of my hand. Christ holds us, secure. But then he adds verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. Greater because he's the creator of all. Greater because he's the sovereign who rules over all. What's the application? No one, all inclusive, no one, not one created being is able, possesses the power to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So that's our safety. We're held by Christ. We're held by the Father for good measure. We're given the Spirit to seal us into the day of redemption. That's our security. And that is what Jesus asks in verse 15, keep them from the evil one. So I hope that you can make the connection between Jesus's prayer here and what he says in verse 13. I speak these things. I pray these things out loud for my people to hear so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. This is joy that is always available to us. This is joy the world cannot take away. This is joy that not even the God of this world can shatter because this is the joy of eternal security. This is the joy of eternal hope. This is the joy of knowing that our faith is protected by the power of God and that not even Satan can remove us from the Father's hand. It's a prayer of security that then leads into Jesus's prayer for gospel boldness in verses 16 through 19. The transition is this, because we are secure, we're required to do something. Because Satan cannot shatter our faith, we must enter into his domain, this world. And we must bring the gospel, we must bring the truth, and we must testify. That's the request we'll look at next time. Father, we thank you that you are the sovereign one over all things. And we thank you that in a world that spirals, it seems faster by the day into sin that you have given us hope and you have given us joy because you have given us eternal life that will never be taken away. We thank you for that gospel message. We thank you, Father, Son and Spirit for protecting our faith I pray that we'd be filled with a joy in that, but also with a boldness to proclaim your glory, your grace to this world. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.